Hello and welcome to the third episode of our Commonwealth Matters podcast. Today we're really going to be focusing on China. So this um, podcast is really going to be split into two main parts. So today we're going to be talking about how China have become the quiet sleeping dragon world superpower that it is um, and the nature of Chinese policy and Chinese society today. The next podcast will focus more on how to manage China from a worldwide perspective, because we know that's the really juicy stuff, but we need to set the groundwork for that conversation. Phoebe is probably our expert on uh, Chinese history and how we've got here today. So I'm gonna hand straight over to her to kind of give you the lowdown. Okay, well, uh, as both of you know, I've done some research. Uh, I actually did my master's dissertation in Chinese propaganda, all very interesting stuff. Um, and what I touched on uh, effectively is how uh, China or the CCP more specifically rose to its propaganda power today. Um, I focus on key issues, including what we've termed as the charm offensive, um, which includes factors like significant funding, utilization of, of media, technology, mass media, um, uh, and other factors which have led to this massive beast that is China today that has caused waves in the West. Um, some good ones, the majority of them very bad. And uh, as we'll hear from some of our speakers today, uh, it has definitely ruffled some feathers and there are major things going on at the moment which will cause concern. So what I've done is uh, I did some digging into how the CCP rose to power and how China first started engaging with the West. Um, and I don't know whether, uh, Sano, you want to talk about the century of humiliation first before I go into more contemporary strategies. Sure. Um, I think it's interesting and worthwhile to know um, some of China's motivations and some of their ideology in terms of what triggered this, um, the CCP and where we're almost at today. Um, China well, themselves say that they had the century of humiliation. Um, it, it started in 1939 um, and, and it went on till around 19, well, 49, essentially. Um, and there is a, a commutable reasons of why they call it the, the century of humiliation. Uh, you've got the defeat in the first opium war by the British. Um, you've got sort of unequal treaties uh, that they had and they had the second opium war, which they lost. Um, then they had a, another defeat in the Sino-French War, uh, another defeat in the, the first Sino-Japanese War, then the second one they also lost. Um, Japan invaded uh, Manchuria. Um, you know, th th there's a general gist in that in those 100 years um, that essentially China lost almost all the wars they fought. Um, they were forced to give major concession to the great powers in, those tr in a lot of those treaties. They were forced to pay large amounts of uh, reparations, uh, open ports up for trade, lease or seed territories. I mean, outer Manchuria, outer West, um, China had to go to the Russian Empire, some went to Germany, uh, Hong Kong to Great Britain, uh, Xinjiang to France, Taiwan and Adelan to Japan. And they also made uh, various concessions to sovereignty and to foreign sort of spheres of influence following those military defenses defeats. So you can really see um, they suffered in those 100 years quite drastically uh, as a nation. And this is a nation that has had 5,000 years of empire building. You know, this is a, um, 
uh, a country that does have historic ties of being one of the strongest and one of the biggest empires in the last 5,000 years. So you can understand having suffered where they suffered those 100 years, that there is going to spark um, a reaction. Um, and, and I think that's where we saw Mao kind of rising to power in 1949 and he ended that civil war, launched the People's Republic of China and this 100-year marathon plan. Um, you know, he, he basically channeled the, you know, the, you know, the improvised nation had this desire for vengeance and uh, they had this desire to kind of get back against a current world order. Um, and I think he really outlined the next century of what China's kind of intentions and plans would be. Um, it's probably best now, I think it's going to sort of your uh, research. Yeah, stuff, so maybe. I was just going to say at the end of the Second World War, you see a, a lot of states move from conventional warfare, which is a whole other topic we can discuss, to uh, which took more of a backseat and uh, the role of international relations, soft power, uh, was was more into the limelight and you can see china jumping on that it's a brilliant opportunity um to transition to something more cultural diplomacy public diplomacy also known as propaganda but you know they and they had uh, i'm going to call it cultural diplomacy um ties back in the 70s with ping pong diplomacy um but it wasn't until really 2002 in the 16th party congress that they spoke about, and this was this was under Zemin, um, where they they really spoke about reform, uh, reforming their image globally, uh, their strategy, and then um, again in two thousand four, uh, this is where the, the their Ministry of Foreign Affairs established the Public Diplomacy Department. So we see a transition here um, for more image based strategies. Uh, forming and and this is the thing that that the CCP does their research. Um, you know, there's there's a huge amount of funding, and we can discuss funding in a moment. But there's a huge amount of research and funding that goes into these strategies, uh, these these global strategies, in order for them to build their image, to build relations from a soft power perspective, uh, which obviously. Um, for example, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, which we, again we can discuss later, is, is a huge strategy, um, you know, to increase Chinese power abroad through soft power means. Um, and then again, uh, we can transition through uh, the different powers. You, you, you then go to Jintao in 2007, who... Um, made really a really good modernization um, progress in terms of the party and in, in terms of their, their cultural outreach. Um, we can transition further from 2007 um, to today, uh, Xi and, and, and all of his progress, the, the massive reforms that they're doing within the CCP. Um, and it, it really, it really is interesting to watch the different strategies, the, the, the different outreach programs that have undertaken in the West, uh, including the Confucius Institutes, uh, the 2008 Olympics, 2015 uh, UK-China Year of Cultural Exchange, um, just loaded, and, and you know, the, the, the pinnacle of the um, outreach is the Belt and Road Initiative. Really, really good. I found uh, something that we'll be releasing before this podcast, and if you haven't uh, read it by now, then please do. Uh, is uh, Phoebe's essay into this, and it is really, really interesting, the rise and fall of Chinese propaganda. I found it, uh, the certain segments that really interested me, especially, I think, the, the charm offensive, um, that, that section there. And I know it's something that we had uh, Robert Spalding talk quite a lot of detail uh, about about that. Um, 
and they used um i think they used davos as a good example I, I remember when g basically came out and said that you know we need to go against protectionism we need to combat it together and uh try and find channels of um you know um opening up dialogues and i remember thinking wow they're actually china's moving and ccp they're moving to a progressive kind of way of um acting and thinking and then his actual actions were quite different um is that something that you'd say is similar phoebe that you've seen for a longer amount of time with your research i agree i think there's a common trend here in that the the amount of information and strap lines and campaigns that we see coming out of the ccp in china as a whole is is a real golden age of vision and and it's it's exciting to see and and to have so many leaders previously from you know from 93 onwards really um to talk about the cultural exchange not just the culture but the education exchange it, it gets to the point where uh, education exchange uh has made china the, the top destination for international students um you know and and in terms of obviously covid depending but those numbers can overtake the uk very very quickly if not already um and it's and it's nice to see all these new initiatives that are coming out but the 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 reality of it is is very dark in that you have human rights abuses you have a, a very strong authoritarian regime and so the it the balance is not right in that until china can become more of a democracy or change their ideology there's always going to be uh, this grating with the west and it doesn't i mean my, my research was fairly extensive but at the end of the day it it basically concluded that until china changes these fundamental issues that they're having at the moment um which is transpiring over to the west you know people are becoming more and more aware with the use of technology uh, these human rights abuses, the censorship, which we spoke in our first episode about um, social media censorship, um, you know, that the, the, these more things have become apparent, the, the less likely we're going to have a, a relationship with China, the less likely it's, and the less likely it's going to be a positive one. I think David Cameron spoke about that as well in his autobiography, talking about diplomatic trips to China, um, and that there was always this, this rhetoric of positivity, um, and that if you were going to get anything positive, like fiscally out of that trip, that you needed to buy into that rhetoric publicly um, and that you needed to be able to stand on a stage and shake the hand and smile and beam because this is all fantastic. Um, and that if you ever, even in private, challenged them on whether the rhetoric was actually going to follow through, then instantly the entire diplomatic exercise just fell apart. Um, and I think that really does sum up um, how much of an illusion it is um, and how, no matter how, how much controlled it is. It, it, it's incredibly controlled and that no matter how much rhetoric you have the second that you kind of break away from that control and question it you're not going to get anything positive out of that situation from them then because the illusion is everything and an image is everything um, especially in chinese culture that image that reputation is so fundamental that if you challenge its legitimacy quite quickly you just see the social structure and, and the political structure then collapse because they don't want to have that relationship with you yeah, a key example is uh, panda diplomacy. This was a, a very minor aspect of my research that I found so interesting uh, as I was looking at sports diplomacy, public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, different types of, of engagements. Panda diplomacy, like ping pong diplomacy, uh, was obviously all pandas in the world and the zoos are owned by China. Um, and so you, you actually see, if you do your research, you can see that when a certain state has 
annoyed China not not you know either tariffs on trade or haven't agreed to certain trade agreements you will see China not renew the lease of that panda to the zoo in that country or in certain cases take back pandas um, and it's crazy small things like that where um, obviously that that has such an effect on either the tourist industry the overall relationship with that state between the state and, the, and China um, and they have no issue doing that they have no issue saying all, all pandas belong to us. They're very expensive animals for, for zoos to, to lease and, and uh, buy, but not ultimately own. Uh, so small things like that, you annoy China, you're, you're going to lose your panda. I think it's those small things that are so interesting because you, you get world superpowers who are, who are on the world stage seen as the bad guys, but very rarely do they have such overwhelming power on the little things. So they'll have a standing army, they'll have nuclear weapons, but it's those small things that should really scare people because they've got their fingers in every single pie that there is. And it's, it's, it's terrifying that a country that is the size of China could, can maintain that control over its own populace of a billion people. That should send a really scary message to the rest of the world about what that country is capable then on a world scale. Because it's it's over ten percent of the world population. It, it's a it's a lot of people. Yeah, and, and all yeah, those things adds up. We were talking about WeChat earlier because it's not just the the control of China's relationship with other states and and how much they monitor and and there are often been been issues with um, the the embassies in certain states collecting information that they shouldn't be collecting or even we've seen in the news uh, last year burning information that they shouldn't be burning being very secretive. It's not just their relationship. Uh, with the rest of the world, it's also their relationship with their people um, and the extreme monitoring of their of their people's censorship. Um, like you were saying, Noah, earlier offline, that uh, when you're watching certain adverts on TV and something that has come up on international TV that is not uh, authorized by the CCP, it goes black. You know, there's just there's certain things which just for, for us in the West seem criminal. Um, you know, it, it would definitely not be, you know, allowed in the West, but in China, it is day to day. It is normal life. Yeah, I think I think that's really important for people in the West to understand it. It's a really hard concept to grasp. Um, so I just for a bit of context, I, I lived in China for, for quite a decent chunk of my life. Um, and so I, I saw that control, especially of information um, on the ground. And for a long time for me, I think it, it just seemed normal. And that was just how the world was. But then coming back to the UK and coming back to Europe, you really look back and go, it was weird that there was one app that was essentially controlled by the Chinese government that everybody used for social media for transferring money. You couldn't buy food at some restaurants if you didn't have it. You were essentially forced to download WeChat. And in doing so, the Chinese government then had an ear, probably quite literally, in every single citizen's phone and they could see and hear everything. And that is truly terrifying. We got really up in arms in the UK, what, five, 10 years ago about Snoopers Charter? That's a grain of rice in, in comparison to the mountain of information that the Chinese government has on its entire populace. And when you've got that amount of information, it means they're very easily manipulated. You know what makes people tick. I, I had literally no idea WeChat had that much power. I remember when you were talking about off air. Like I, I knew they were. Like, I, I looked at them like the WhatsApp equivalent. I, I had no idea they had the. You make payments, fire it, and do all these other things on there. Um, I, I I find the uh, going back to sort of their motives and a bit on how they got here and what they're sort of 
plans are and stuff. There's a great uh, document or book uh, called Unrestricted Warfare. Um, you can get snippets of it online. Um, it's not actually fully available in English, the, the fully translated version, but there are loads of different institutions that are working on making it um, so that everyone can read it. Um, and it's essentially written by two senior people in China's People uh, Liberation Army uh, in 1999. And it really, I think, kind of outlines the, the Chinese view uh, or the CCP's view um, on what they're planning to do and what they've been trying to do. So I'll read an actual passage from there, which is pretty chilling, um, to say the least. And it starts with, the new principles of war are no longer using armed force to compel the enemy to submit to one's will, but rather using all means, including armed force or non-armed force, military and non-military, and lethal and non-lethal means to compel the enemy to accept one's interest. That's a, a passage from their unrestricted warfare. And I think that really highlights, uh, these are two senior people in, in the People's Army, and I think it kind of highlights the CCP model. Um, I think it, it, it's key to know is that I think they recognize that a nation no longer needs vast armies to control another country's population um, or its resources or its government. And I think that change is what they've been very very successful at. i think they've almost recognized i think it's like what you're saying phoebe after world war ii that you know they probably can't compete on a military basis against uh, or especially a lot of the western countries i think they'd be pretty easily dismantled and they I, but I think they also knew that that probably the next stage of warfare isn't going to be uh by people or um the next advance it was more going to be technology or um you know finding other different means of battling other countries and I think they almost have like this seems from this document uncompromising attitude in terms of by any means necessary it seems to me. I think that's yeah. the same within the country as well though like though it, that's not just a foiling policy issue that's if you take something like Tiananmen Square hmm. they, that is a truly horrendous massacre but you go to Beijing and I, I remember standing in Tiananmen Square and you look around and it's just next to the Forbidden City, and it's this massive tourist occasion, everyone's standing there smiling, laughing, and then you realise they don't know what happened there. So wow. it hits on all fronts. They, if you never know it's happened, you can't get angry about it. And it's, it is that, it is almost that militaristic, but in, in engineering socially, this, this lack of awareness, it, it, you can do whatever you want militarily, and then people can't get upset about it because they never know it's happened. Yeah, it's, it's the rewriting of history, um, and and it's uh, Tiananmen Square is not the first or or even the last uh, event where they rewrote what was taught in schools, rewrote what was published, uh, and rewrote what actually physically went down in history books. For example, you had the the Chinese Democracy Party that was founded and subsequently banned in 1998. The 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 extent that they go to to stop any form of of opposition. Um, you know, any anyone actually getting a wider understanding of what's happened, the level of control that's been been ongoing, uh, is is really scary. And I don't think any any state, any any government should be able to have that level of control. Uh, and it goes on so freely, or lack of freely, um, in, in China. How would an opposition party exist? Like, uh, how how do you hold? If you're, how do you hold them accountable? How do you hold the CCP accountable? Is it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's insane when even over if if you were expressing it like a dissenting opinion over over say WeChat, 
you're telling the CCP that, and it, it, that goes right into the party's hands. And your message probably won't go through if it goes on long enough. But you, wow. when you're giving that information about that dissent straight to your straight to the people that you're trying to, to dethrone, and it's the com complete control of not only information but also social interaction, means that I don't think you could ever you could ever really form a solid opposition if China stays the way it is, because you're not going to be able to go to a library and get a book on why the CCP is bad, because that book won't exist. And that's, that's where the control really comes from. Is it, if you shut off every avenue for even forming a dissenting opinion in your mind, then you're in a very dire situation. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I also think that um, to go back out to the international stage as well, is that the, this level of control isn't just in China. It's uh, we, we the Confucius Institutes, which have been a massive um, controversial topic since their formation, um, they, they, they get roughly over a million pounds to start up in countries, there are hundreds of them um, uh, globally, uh, they get over $100,000 to uh, sustain and uh, effectively for people who haven't heard of Confucius Institutes before, they are institutes paired with universities globally uh, to teach uh, the, the Chinese languages and culture and tradition. Um, so. Uh, one would say that they are under the guise of cultural exchange um, but a lot of times uh, the, the Confucius Institutes fund a lot of education in these universities that maybe will not be able to fund it themselves um, and the, they, it, it is a CCP initiative it is a, a Chinese government initiative and therefore you can bet I mean if that like we were discussing with WeChat anything that goes on on those hubs that are attached to universities will be fed back to the CCP. Um, so it, it is like a massive chessboard, a big chess game, and they have many pieces of play. And it's not just what they proactively put out, it's the research and the info and the intel that they collect in that they can collect through these outreach programs like Confucius Institutes. It's the mass information that they're dealing with to then decide which step they next take. Uh, um... Uh, thing about the exchange of students. I think Robert Spalding spoke about how uh, essentially there's a lot of um, Chinese students in American universities regularly will be reporting back to CCP or to Chinese officials on this is what we've been doing, this is what we're learning, this from a very, you know, on a massive level of detail. You know, you think about when we go abroad or if we uh, go to, you know, a different co country to learn, I don't think our embassy pretty much ever contacts us unless we're in, you know, unless we're in trouble and we'll contact them. But their embassy and their work is a lot more substantial. Um, and it's interesting because last week, I can't remember which newspaper it was, but it might have been Guardian. They actually did a report on how um, Chinese students, um, some of them are um, almost acting as like spies for the CCP, but they don't even know it, that the students are unaware. They're just innocently in it's this country. It's right. they'll, they'll not be aware that it's that it's not a normal thing to do. But if the whole world, or yeah, essentially, if, if your whole world has been telling you that that's what's normal, then you'll go internationally. You you'll spread that idea that that's standard and that's not really weird and really dangerous and really worrying. Um, and, and that's where it really starts to get quite terrifying, really. I think it'd be probably a good time to bring in uh, Robert Spalding's clip. Um, I think the question I'd asked him is how he believes we got here to the stage of how China are now. Well, first of all, they're pragmatists. Um, they don't, you know, ideology is not 
what drives him. Power um, and wealth is what drives him. And they're pragmatic in terms of how they achieve that. And they study. They they spent a long a long time. And, and part of that unrestricted warfare document is documenting this understanding that the Soviet Union and kind of the model that came out of um, you know this disdain for capitalism and the um, the exploitation of the working class you know during the Industrial Revolution that those models never worked. And in fact, we needed a new model. And, and so, um, and this really doesn't come about in China until Mao Zedong dies and Deng Xiaoping uh, takes over. And he basically says, look, um, this hasn't worked for us. We've killed millions, tens of millions of people. Um, obviously these guys have something we need to, we need to figure out what it is. And so they basically, he has this big trip to uh, to the United States, wears a cowboy hat in, in Texas. He goes to, in addition to speaking to the president, he goes to all the major corporations. They come to China, do business in China. I do think that's a, that's a really, really important thing to understand, I think, when looking at China is that is that power will, power and economics will always come above ideology. Um, and the CCP has always put it above ideology. I, I think it's, in understanding that is probably twofold so one massive part of it is that this is a country which masquerades as communist um but is in reality most definitely not the power is power and wealth is very centralized but it's also not capitalist because it's not this free market um it's not this free market economic model um because the government do actually own most i think 88 percent of china's FTSE 100 companies um and then the other part of that is that, again, if you look at the building somewhere like Shanghai into the, into the metropolis that it is, the, the Chinese government have no qualms about, about just bulldozing streets and streets and streets of people's homes and building skyscrapers. And they don't care because they're never going to be criticized for it. So it doesn't matter. So that power will always become uh, come above ideology for them. I think it's like the, the capitalism, but with like totalitarian characteristics. I think that's what China is. It's like they and they they try and portray this free market myth, uh, but they don't believe in free markets. That none of that um, uh, anything they do has nothing to do with free market. I, I was trying to find the exact figure. You know, China invests twenty percent of U.S. startups um, as part of this Made in China twenty twenty five plan that they unveiled in two thousand seventeen. So it kind of shows, and th this isn't like a this isn't something that um, people are taking on initiatively. They're almost being forced. So this is a, a government policy that uh, they must invest at least 20% in all U.S. startups. So I kind of, it kind of shows that they, they have this almost, um, they try and tell the world that they believe in capitalism, that they believe in free market economy, but the reality is something very, very different. Yeah, I, I, like, I like both the points. I, several things. I like the, the discussion we were having about the stock market and how, uh, I remember us having the same discussion with Robert uh, Spalding about how if the CCP wants to take out funding from a certain uh, fund within the stock market, there is nothing to stop them. So investors one day have a significant portion uh, with good positions and the next day have absolutely nothing. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I, I find that so interesting. Uh, it's the lack of regulation that the CCP has. Um, 
and, and how they have so many fingers and so many pies. For example, talking about capitalism or free market, uh, the, the influence that China has, for example, on Hollywood and the film industry uh, with, you know, with significant funding comes significant influence. And China, as we know, has a huge amount of money to spend on what they want. Uh, and uh, for example, Hollywood movies that need funding, well, that there's no, no issue taking it from the CCP because you have $200 billion to spend on a great film. Um, and there's the influence that they can have through that. And it's, it, it, I think that the significant funding is a, a key point to, to understand because that is, like you said, it's not just ideology, but that is the true source of power is, is the amount of money that they have to spend on what they want. Uh, the film industry is a really interesting example because there's been a couple of controversies with, in regards to Disney, I think, specifically, um, and the relationship that they've got with China. So there is a, I think it's called the Chinese Film Association, and they're basically an arm of the government that in China, it's not like a normal um, television market or movie market. They actually only approve, I think it's like 41, 41 or so foreign movies a year to be played in China. Um, so obviously, in doing that, when you've got a billion people, that's a massive market. And they basically have got to the point where they only really approve um, movies which, so, which show China or the CCP in a positive light. So you've got country, companies like Disney who essentially created the Mulan movie purely to appease the CCP. I didn't really end up doing it, but it, it got approved there anyway and made them a load of money. Um, and I think the first time that it really came to light was, I think it, was, it, must, I think it might have been the first Iron Man movie. They inserted scenes in it where Chinese doctors basically came to the rescue and saved Iron Man. And that I think was the first real time when people realized, that must be 2008, when people realized that this, was, this wasn't just some random economic ideology. This, this was about power and this was about controlling image. Um, and that's really scary that, that a country can manipulate something, someone the size of Disney into inserting scenes into a movie to make them feel good. Yeah, right. It's the subliminal messages. And, and I, I wish I could remember the film that I, I read during my research, but it was about how China... Uh, that was the CCP was funding this film and they didn't like uh, first off the I think the villain was Chinese so no scrap that you can't have a villain you cannot portray China as any evil form whatsoever and there were certain action parts like you were saying that that they didn't like and so the the production company had to go back and refilm these these parts in a better way no expense spared and and it's and, and you you know learning about it now you think this is ridiculous you know this is over-the-top control um, but it's it's small subliminal images and small things here and there and it's not just with Hollywood it's with advertising it's with you know everything that we see all the adverts that we see so for example the CCP spender or the CCP advertising firm that is owned by the government um, spent a huge amount of money in, in Times Square advertising and held billboards for years uh, with Chinese companies uh, pr pr you know, effectively promoting China um, and it, it's a lot of money and you would think states wouldn't really think that far ahead in you know in other countries how do we advertise but it's all mapped out it's all under a strategy it's all within the department um, it, it's quite impressive actually <laughs> you have to admit that thinking no far idea. ahead is really is really important as well to understand is, is this is a party which I think in the in the west this say this conservative government they've, they've got to be re-elected in what four years now and that's how we do democracy. But they know they're going to be in power for as long as they want to be. So you can be long-termist and it, you can implement some short-term pain for your citizens or medium-term pain if you think it's going to maintain your power. 
Um, and I think that's really important as well to understand is it doesn't matter the next five years. They, they've got this vision of, of long term. They want to be the leading superpower on the world stage and everything. Exactly. And they're also not held back by uh, human rights issues. So, for example, in the West, we have working hours that we have to work by. We are protected um, you know, by human rights regulations that allows us to still have some kind of fulfilled life. And uh, the majority of us, depending on what we want to do as a nine to five or, or zero hours contract, something along those lines, what we have is protected by, you know, our human rights. They don't have that. So like you were saying with the buildings, uh, I find it so interesting how quickly, I mean, even you take COVID, how quickly they could build hospitals, um, which, okay, great, that, that's really good, the number of hospitals that they're building. The number of nuclear power plants that they can build, you know, extensive infrastructure that helps them in the long run in order for electricity generation, nuclear power generation, the, the you know, everything is manufactured in China. And they can do that because they aren't, prevented by human rights regulations or protections from their people so they can have a, a huge workforce that can get to go day and night in the factories building everything making them a huge amount of money through trades you know any other products that they sell that we buy um, and and from there that that just creates a huge amount of wealth that then they can use elsewhere like for example in africa uh, buying up loads of land in Africa, um, doing huge trade negotiations and trade deals with Africa, um, that is one to watch. That is not something to be aware of and think, oh, that's nice. That's, that is a huge power play, uh, a, a huge long-term strategy that, that, that we really do have to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think that whole, um, if, if we're talking uh, human rights, um, and, and not really caring about them and just looking for the looking for the progress in them. I think that's kind of summed up in one image for me, which was um, standing on the bond, which is a river in Shanghai, and seeing a skyscraper go up that was being built with with bamboo scaffolding. And going, that's actually insane because that's just not safe. But it doesn't matter. If you've got a billion people, and they're all just that useful idiot um, to the CCP, then you can do what you want, and it, it doesn't matter. I had no idea about the Hollywood influence. I have to be honest. That's something that I've definitely learned from this chat. I, I might watch Iron Man again. I literally had no idea that they had uh, this much influence on, on Hollywood films. The, I know the they key is that to, controversy, but I don't really... Yeah. No, the key is to see where the funding comes from uh, or, or when the, the production company, where their funding comes from. Um, because it is, it, if you go looking, you will find, you will definitely find uh, CCP influence. It's very interesting. Big respect to actually whoever whoever it was that made the Batman trilogy. They had one of their films. Yeah, um, he basically told China just to to go away because there was a scene. Oh, because the, the, there's the a call. scene. Yeah, in, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. said, "Why well, you need to change that? Or we're not going to release it." And he just tells them to go away. Um, so massive respect to him to be there because that's yeah. Great. I'm so glad because that's like my that's they're probably one of my favorite films. So um, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, because the 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 scene in Hong Kong where he takes the businessman. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the it. That was the, yeah, the CCP said to change it, and they just said no. Nice. It, it's, it's interesting because we're talking about, like, they're sort of, um, you know, we don't want to go too much into our next episode, but, you know, their influence on uh, the globe and, and what they've been doing. I, I worked in, um, in, my, in my first job. I did a lot of work with uh, foreign currency, and um, essentially uh, we were doing, we were creating, like, financial products for businesses, who purchase in large volumes in, in different countries. And so China would come up a lot because a lot of these businesses um, 
manufactured goods in China, or they have some ties to China. So you would think it would be the Chinese rumbri, which is their main currency. And um, that was not the case. Um, it was Chinese yuan. And to be honest, most of the time it was US dollar um, in terms of that's how they were. Um, that's how you'd purchase goods from China. And I wasn't that initially it didn't take me back too much because for example, when dealing with a lot of countries in Africa, they would use US dollar also because it's seen as a more safer currency. Um, it did. I did find it a bit weird in, in a sense because I thought, you know, China is a superpower. It's not like some of the lesser developed African nations. Um, but it's only when I started really digging into research in terms of what they've been doing, uh, which is they've been manipulating foreign currency for over 25 years. Um, Essentially, the, the Chinese rumbri doesn't leave China and um, they use the Chinese yuan or US dollar as their sort of trading um, currency. And by doing that, they can devalue their own currency. So it allows them to uh, conquer the world uh, export market. Um, and it also means that they've actually accumulated the largest reserve of foreign currencies, uh, which they put into like global credit markets to fuel cheap credit. Um, and you could argue that's one of the reasons that we led to sort of global credit uh, bubbles and busts. Uh, you know, we buy their cheap goods, they take our pounds, our dollars, euros, uh, and then they buy treasuries, which uh, supplies more credit to buy more of their cheaper goods. So it's just like a, uh, a constant cycle. Um, so it, it's another, I think it's another like almost segment of the unrestricted warfare. I think a lot of this stuff just comes down to that document um, where it's like this, uh, it's almost, war's quite an extreme word, but I, I don't know if, there, if, if there's any other word that describes it better, to be honest. It's, it's almost like these little attacks that are just so sophisticated and so um, clever that I, we probably don't pay it enough attention. Um, no, you obviously lived in China. Like, yeah. what's that experience right, like in terms of currencies? Yeah, so I think it, it's important to understand as well. So when you're actually in China, um, and spending money on the ground, so it's, it's an a restaurant, RMB and, and Wan just become essentially interchangeable. Um, but if you're going to get out a significant amount of money from a, from a bank, and I'm pretty sure they're all centrally controlled, you essentially need to go and give them your ID um, and make it very clear to the government what money you're spending. And they obviously know how much money you're earning, so they can see where it's going. They can they can see if it's going out with the country. And obviously, I was there with a lot of expats, and a lot of them ended up in situations where they left China and couldn't take the money with them. And it's still essentially sitting in in Chinese banks. And the Chinese government go, well, you can come over here, you can give us your passport, and then maybe we'll consider giving you your money back. And obviously, nobody's going to do that. And it's it's this situation where again, it's that control. So if you're spending all your money through, through WeChat, then they know where your money's going always. Um, and it's, it's this, again, it's this control of everything in your life and they can always see and they can always hear. Um, and imagine in the UK, if every time you needed to go and get money out, you or a significant amount of money, you had to go and essentially tell the government you were doing it. It would be a very scary world to live in. I think that's why we had such an initial uh, shock with the the whole 5G stuff and the Huawei stuff, because uh, we, I, I think in the West, we are um, not pro mass surveillance. Um, you know, in general, uh, the population likes to 
be left alone. They like to be able to have their privacy and do their own thing. It's a big, it's a big part of, of, of Western democracy. Um, so this is when this all came in, where we have this 5G, you know, by a significant percentage, especially in the UK, uh, being provided by Huawei. And what does that mean? And we saw the UK react exactly how they should react and say, actually, no, you can't, you know, this is this is too far now. Because I think that's really perfect clear direction. It was a clear kind of push to see, is this something we can do? Okay, no, we can't. It's a really good example of what Sonal was saying, I think, with often not noticing the the encroaching power. Um, because Huawei technically and officially is not government owned. Technically. Mm. I, I, I'm obviously not going to speak to their, to their actual leadership system. I don't know it. but Yeah, well, neither is TikTok. <laughs> Regardless, the reaction of the UK government suggests that whether it is or isn't government owned, that information still gets back there. So there may be this awareness now that's growing that we can't just take things at face value. And I know we'll get much more into that on the next podcast, but the, it, the tides may be changing. We may be becoming more aware of, of the nature of uh, the way that Chinese foreign policy and domestic policy operates. It, it does. It's a good point. It, I think it's taken us a really, really long time to figure this out. So, um, from like the early 80s to like 90s, uh, the WAN uh, declined, I think, around 82% against the US dollar. So they essentially tanked their own currency. Uh, so it gave them that sort of advantage. And they kept it, uh, I think it was like 8.2 something against the dollar for the next decade. So this allowed basically China to, their economy to explode. Um, and it allowed them to sort of take out um, over the world export market and jobs and the foreign currency. And then in 2005, um, their economy um, had basically moved in the space of like a couple of years from 350 billion to 3.5 trillion, uh, making it at that time the, the, the third largest world economy. The US realized this, um, and then they actually threatened um, Chinese goods, um, and they threatened tariffs, sorry, against Chinese goods until they change a, a currency policy. So that was, I, I thought maybe at that point, this is a, the tide is changing that we're going to recognize that, you know, they've been doing some interesting things, but that didn't happen. Um, so China agreed to stop undervaluing their currency, uh, I think for about eight years. Um, and essentially from 2005 to 2013, it went up by, it's, the, the currency strengthened by about four, four and a half percent. Their economy had doubled, um, had gone up by more than double digits. So the 4.5% was nothing compared to the actual how much the Chinese economy had actually strengthened. Um, so it just basically allowed them to become the second largest economy in the world. And we are like almost oblivious to it. And no one really fully recognizes it. But it's such a simple but effective tool that they've done. Um, so it, I think it goes back to all of our points in the sense of they do this actually so well and sometimes it's actually out in the open um and i don't know if it's through a lack of knowledge or just people being scared to act but few people seem to speak out against it i think what it is and i again i know we're going to go far more in depth on this on the next one but they've basically engineered this situation in which it's very hard for a country to turn around and go right we're not playing the game anymore um, especially yeah. i think with australia they've really struggled to manage their very public diplomatic issues with China um, and struggled to match that with the fact that they are almost entirely reliant on them for their mineral imports. And it's, you've ended up with this situation where very subtly China has made the rest of the world reliant on it. And it's very hard then for the rest of the world to turn its back on them. It's a brilliant strategy and one that's, you know, from 
from from the seventies onwards, really, and it's 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 so interesting to see, and it really is a more than just a two pronged approach where you know we're not dealing with trade here, we're not dealing with uh, China building loads of roads to increase connection, um, you know, providing nuclear power, uh, other electricity to other countries, you know, all of the stuff that they're doing in the background, whilst you know. Uh, basically trying to move forward and take more land and it, it's it, the the intricacies are so interesting uh, and and like you said is that at the end of the day if they were to do something i don't know like a certain human rights abuse of, of a, you know, a, a certain population i don't know um then it gets to the point where we turn around and we say actually you can't do this trade tariffs you know we're going to increase the trade tariffs we're going to you know stop doing trade with you we're going to tell you that actually you need to sign up to certain human rights protections that the west does if you want to have a good special relationship with us at which point then they can start pushing back and doing other things and, and the west i think is so dependent on china um that we you're just going to end up going back and forth and i really don't think that we have a good uh, any good leverage here um and again, that's that's something for the next the next podcast. I think it's a good time to uh, talk about the human rights issues to bring in the uh, Tron clip uh, where he um, essentially mentions about uh, the human rights abuses and why he thinks that this should be called genocide. An important one. Uh, genocide is a word that uh, we shouldn't use lightly, and it's clear that. Uh, through a number of credible reports now that there is a genocide taking place. Um, our view is that uh, the government uh, needs to work with our allies to develop a uh, comprehensive uh, response to that finding. Um, we're calling on the Liberal government, the Trudeau government, to first uh, come to that conclusion because there is, we believe, sufficient evidence to conclude that. Uh, we call on them to work with allies to facilitate other countries' recognition of this fact. And we're calling on them to work closely with allies like the United Kingdom and the United States uh, to take uh, collective action um, to stop this gross violation of human rights. I think yeah, I think that that poses or leads us into a, a very um, important couple of questions. The first of which is the definition of this, because there are those at home and abroad that do argue that what the Chinese government is doing with the Uyghur Muslims doesn't actually fall under the definition of genocide, um, because they're not actively going out and killing them; they're just make castrating them and making them infertile so it's, it's it's this weird loophole that i i personally don't give a huge amount of credence to i think you're achieving the same results just by different means but then the other question which i think joe biden actually touched on in in a town hall last week i i sent this to to both of you guys i think where he essentially just said well genocide is a chinese norm um so leave them be which it may have just been a classic joe biden misspeak but is a very, very worrying, worrying sentiment. And I don't know whether we can just dismiss something like this as the Chinese norm. Absolutely not. Um, and you see this with the West versus non-Western states is that you give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Um, we saw with, with uh, Russia and the annexation of Crimea, and you're seeing it now with China, is that the West cannot 
at all allow China to do any of this uh, because you say, oh, oh, okay, it's just it's just a Chinese norm. Um, you know, the, each each state is allowed their own cultures. You can't impose your culture onto another state. Um, you can't say that, oh, well, you can't impose Western norms onto another state if, if they don't want it. That's That's been an age-old debate. Um, but when human rights uh, are being abused, uh, at that point, you, you have to put your foot down. You cannot give China an inch on this one. Agreed. I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I, I think how this pans out. Um, yeah, it's they, this human right abuse is is something that they've been doing for a very long time. It's not something that's really that new. Um, it's just that it's great that we're actually learning about it and hearing about it now. Um, so I'll, I'll be fascinated to see what we do and what. Um, for me, it's going to be a, like a, a unilateral thing. I think we're going to need support from allies and to actually do something. I think one nation alone cannot make much of a difference to China. Um, but I suppose we're kind of touching on next episode a, a little bit there. Um, I think uh, on on that, uh, there was focused on, on the actual events itself rather than the international response to it, which I know we'll get on to. There's... Um, when I think the story first really started to break into the mainstream media, um, the was it the Chinese ambassador went on the BBC? Um, or was it the Andrew Marr show? And, the, and I think it was. And Andrew Marr essentially showed him some of the videos that had been taken of the concentration camps. And he didn't actually try to deny they existed. He just said the video was fake. And it's, it's that kind of assumption that that would work in China. That, that just saying, oh, yeah, it's not real that works in china but this is where i think you see the fundamental difference is in the west we don't we don't buy that we don't just go ah yes going to just trust the chinese ambassador implicitly and he's always going to be 100 percent honest and I, I think that was really really interesting as to telling you quite a lot about the chinese mentality that there was no justification for it there, there was no a, a, attempt to try and diminish how important it was it was just that video is not real I think that that kind of sums up a lot. Trying to be, they're um, at the moment the only thing I can't get out of my head, and it's just reoccurring. Is this the from the Chinese embassy, or was that tweet that they did regarding like this uh, subject matter? I just can't. That's the main thing. Whenever I think of China at the moment and uh, embassy stuff and ambassadors, I just can't get over the the tweet. Um, but they yeah, did they and, and try it, to reframe not letting Uyghur Muslim women have babies as like some feminist, some feminist. That's it. That's yeah, the one. It was, it genuinely, um, it was insane. I thought it was parody. Yeah, same, same. It's uh, bizarre, bizarre. But it is, it is interesting to observe. Um, also, I think it's absolutely uh, uh, despicable. I do think that um, the fact that a lot of these uh, leaders and, and uh, authorities aren't democratically elected, there's no reason for them to be transparent. So when they're asked a, a simple question here in the West, or we say, well, if you don't give us the answer that's the truth, or if you're not transparent, then we just don't vote you in next time. Easy peasy. But with, with this, it's, it's, it's the cultural difference, it's the, the authoritarian difference, it's the regime difference, where if we ask them a straight question, um, one, they don't want to either be locked up, put in pr prison, tortured, or even killed. So they're going to say what the lines are. They're going to take the lines to take, and that's what they're going to say. And they're not really going to be too concerned that maybe what they're saying sounds ridiculous to us. Because at the end of the day, 
the ambassadors and, and other representatives of the CCP are more afraid of the CCP than they are of us. Um, so there, there's no incentive for them to, to be transparent and say, oh, let me level with you here. You know, they're, they're, they will just say what they're told to say and, and not bust an eyelid. No, I agree. It's, it's, it's evident. Um, I, I, I'm more, I think, with the ambassador stuff and no, you'll probably have a bit better knowledge on this. What's the, so that we have a Chinese embassy in, in the UK. Um, like, what, what's their sort of relationship with CCP? Because they must have regular contact with our government and their government. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure um, as to the formal relationship of it, but I, I would assume as with most situations, I think you've seen it with Russia as well, that they used as really kind of this diplomatic immunity opportunity for spies. That's, I, I assume, I, again, I right. can't say that with absolute confidence, but that's generally what we see in the world today. So I would assume there's an implicit understanding between the CCP and the British government that that's, that's what goes on. And then obviously we've got our um, consulates and stuff over there as well. So I assume, I assume they're used in a similar vein because that's just how the world works and, and that's how information mm. works. Um, and there, there's just this implicit understanding between governments that there is a level of it that is acceptable and that we can kind of get on with. Um, but that interview cemented for me 100% that the, that ambassador was just there as a representative of the CCP and he didn't want to lose face. I'm going to watch that video. I don't think I've seen it. I'm going to give that a watch. It's terrifying. It's really scary because it's, it's just this. But I think part of it is um, within Chinese culture generally, there's this real focus on face and, and your exterior appearance, not, not physically, but what people think of you. And it's, very, it's a very fragile, um, very fragile construct. And going on TV and admitting that, it was, that that video was real and that was a legitimate problem, that would have not just lost that ambassador face, but would have lost the CCP face and lost China face. And no matter what, the CCP and the Chinese pursue in regards to foreign policy, face will always be a huge part of it and what the rest of the world thinks of them. And it's not necessarily, oh, we look at them and think they're a good guy, but it's, we look at them and we're scared. That's, that's equally important, I think, in, in, in regards to maintaining that, that, that face. Exactly. They, they want to be a, a world player and um, they, they want to basically have a seat at the big boys table. Um, and I mean, who wouldn't? Um, and it, it, it is really interesting because, for example, the, the one child policy uh, that was a, a big part of, of uh, Chinese government and also their culture for a while. Um, for us, I remember the first time that I heard that thinking, that's ridiculous. That's insane. How can you tell people they can only have one child and that be, and that be it? But the the, the listening to leadership uh, speeches during the time saying that once we've solved our population crisis, we're then going to solve, you know, our our image crisis. And that you know, hearing those speeches of saying, right, we deal with population and we deal with it the fastest way we can, and then we move on and we, you know, we make. Uh, being economically strong and also having a good image that, that that those are the aims you know they they talk about pillars a lot you know having three pillars which is you know the economy culture and politics and and then it all revolves around it and they have to make sure that, that you know each one stands strong so interesting the, the, the one child policy was like so bad I, I remember quite immediately within like a year or two there were some really like horrible news outlets and that you're finding from that the amount of 
um, daughters or like newly born girl babies that were just left by like bins and like dustbins um, was like astronomical. And I think they started, it was quite clear what there was like a higher uh, male babies being reported than female babies at that period. It was such a crazy policy to have. That I think was um, definitely should have raised probably more eyebrows than it did at the time. Yeah, I think something really interesting on, on that gender disparity within the world of child policy is that now in, in today's China, you can't ask, legally, you can't ask your doctor the gender of your baby because... Oh, okay, because of that policy. With, yeah, during the one-child policy, if people would go and be like, is it a girl? And if it was, then they would just get an abortion. Um, so wow. now you, if you want to know the gender of your baby, there's a lot of money that goes under the table. Um, and that's kind of implicitly understood, but it's if you're less well off, then you obviously can't do that. So they, they did kind of take a measure to really try and solve this problem of their own creating, but again, didn't really do it and just created this entirely different one, um, which just led to systemic corruption. Um, and a really, really odd, again, cyclical policy of just creating problems, which you then solve by just going, ah, well, corruption fixes it. Yeah, corruption is an interesting point because um, I, I go, go back to the one-child policy. It wasn't an issue if you are the elite 1%. If you had money, none of this is really an issue. This is only for the, the population that are really struggling, you know, that, that, ha that don't have a lot of money, they don't have any say, and they have hardly any control of their own lives. You know, if you're in the 1% and you want to have another child, it is no problem to have another child. And this, this corruption just is systemic through, throughout almost everything that the CCP does. Um, and, and that is something I think we should definitely focus on maybe in the next episode in terms of how do we combat the CCP's action. Uh, one of the biggest issues is how do you combat corruption? And you don't, you, obviously you don't just have it in, in China, you, you see it a lot in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it, it's, you know, throughout the globe, it's definitely a massive issue. Um, maybe even another podcast that we can discuss, but, uh, you know, the, just kind of how to deal with corruption with such a forceful state that, that has so much power that it seemed almost impossible. The, the no i agree i think the corruption stuff to be honest it, it's it's a issue that i think a lot of you know a lot of our sort of commonwealth countries face as well it's one of the sort of big uh, agendas that even their own governments identify and say that there's stuff that they need to work on um so i think that's definitely something we could probably explore in quite a bit of detail um i think that that probably sums up today's chat i suppose i, I think um we, we've covered quite a bit i think that the next one will be uh, a fairly detailed and interesting one. Um, so I think we, we can probably start to close things off. Noah, do you want to give us a, a brief summary and let us know about the next podcast? Yeah, so this podcast really, we hope what we've given you here is a really solid baseline um, to kind of understand why China is what it is, how it's got to this point, and then start to think about how we need to move forward so the next episode will almost wholly be on the really juicy stuff about how the rest of the world needs to react and how it can react in a way that's progressive and doesn't just lead to massive nuclear annihilation because that's the danger here so it makes it really really important but china's not a country like everyone else it's a country with a very very unique culture and a very very unique system of government 
and an equally unique economic position because it's made this world that is reliant on it. So it's going to be some really fascinating discussion and we really hope you look forward to that as well and we look forward to chatting about it hopefully. Indeed. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you.